1: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and in this episode, we're looking at a forgotten, marginalised aspect of of the Holocaust. North Africa, especially Libya, Egypt, even Algeria, well they're not really on the mental map where most people think of the Holocaust, neither is Tunis or Baghdad, yet these were places where the Holocaust was perpetrated during the Second World War. As the brilliant journalist and author Gershom Gorenberg explains in this podcast, this history may well have been forgotten because the number of Jewish victims was somewhat small, but If it wasn't for the British victory in North Africa, the plans and preparations that the Nazis had put forward would have led to mass murder across the region. Indeed, he calls it a near-miraculous British victory, and places like El Alamein mark the borders of the Holocaust, because it was here that the British-led forces were able to turn back the tide of the Nazi war machine. Nevertheless, we shouldn't forget these histories. As Gershom explains, to forget it erases the perpetrators, their crimes, and the greater crimes they planned. So here is the ever-brilliant Gershom Gorenberg on the Holocaust in North Africa and the Middle East. Hi Gershon, welcome back onto the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Excellent. It's a pleasure to be with you. Good. Well, it's great to have you back. Last time we spoke, I remember that you mentioned about the Holocaust in North Africa during the Second World War, something which I knew so very little about, and so many people know little about. So I had to get you back on the podcast to tell us more about this important history. But perhaps we can start more broadly. Of course, when we're talking about North Africa, we're talking forty, forty one, forty two, 42, even into early 43. But when we come to the Holocaust more broadly, when should we consider the start date of this as a state-sponsored policy of mass murder?
3: That's a debated question because there's a whole debate which I'm not going to try to settle between the historians who say that the plan for mass murder of all the Jews was there for the beginning and those who say that it sort of organically developed one step at a time in Nazi policy. Certainly, by the time of the invasion of Poland, there was an intention to either kill or push Jews into a sort of limited area of settlement, sort of a massive ghetto in Poland. And all sorts of strictures started against the Jews in Poland. It was improvised as it went along, but the policy was very clear to separate the Jews from the population, and that quite a few were killed already, and the pace of that increased. The, at the beginning of the invasion of the Soviet Union of Barbarossa in June 1941, by that time the policy was clearly in place, and units of SS and special German police force were sent in with the Wehrmacht and were carrying out massacres as they went in occupied Soviet territory. In fact. And here's a little aside to the code-breaking side of the story, which is where we started last time. Bletchley Park, GCHQ's center in the British countryside, their code-breakers had broken the ciphers of the SS and of the special German police units, and although they only were able to intercept a portion of the messages, by the summer of 1941, they were already receiving regular reports in which these units reported how many Jews they had killed that day. and. These reports were sent on to Churchill with his daily packet of intelligence reports. And in August of 1941, Churchill gave a speech, broadcast speech in which he said that a crime without a name was taking place in the territory that the Nazis were conquering in Soviet territory. He did not mention specifically that the people being killed were mainly Jews, but he made it clear that thousands and thousands of people were being massacred. And here's a connection to the North African front. So by the end of the summer, the authorities of the SS had come to the conclusion that this was tiring their troops out too much to commit mass murder by shooting. They wanted a more efficient method of murdering large numbers of people. And they decided that the way to do that would be mobile gas chambers. And this idea had already been tried experimentally, but the person who was put in charge of mass producing these vehicles of death was an SS officer by the name of Walter Ralph, And by the autumn of 1941, his operation was producing these vans which were sent to Eastern Europe for the murder of Jews. By the end of the war, the estimates are a half a million or more Jews were killed in the mobile death chambers that Ralph was in charge of producing. And I mention this because Ralph also plays a critical role in the history of the Holocaust outside of
2: Europe. So take us through to this next stage of the history then, because the Holocaust in Europe is, well, documented, although, of course, we're hearing lots of and learning lots of new things all the time. But when it comes to North Africa, when does this begin? One question I've got to ask is, does it begin with the Germans and the SS and the deployment of these mobile gas chambers? Or is it even earlier? Because, of course, it's the Italian evasion through to Egypt and Libya as early as September 1940. Do the Italians take part in this? Does Mussolini have a role?
3: Well, Mussolini had adopted a racist anti-Semitic policy by 1938 and had introduced race laws in Italy that were very similar to the Nuremberg laws, expelling Jews from professions. Up to that time, the fascist party had been an authoritarian party, but had not been explicitly anti-Semitic, and there were even Jews who were members of the fascist party. They were, of course, expelled from the fascist party. They were expelled from the military, from education. Their books weren't published anymore. All sorts of measures were taken against the Jews of Italy. Libya was, at that time, an Italian colony. It's the peace that Italy had managed to bite out of Africa, as it were. And officially, the race laws were supposed to be applied in Libya as well. The Italian governor in Libya, a general by the name of Balbo, who was actually one of the original fascists and and sort of a rival of Mussolini, he was an old time fascist. He didn't believe in these race laws, particularly because he thought it would damage his colony economically. So he was only applying them sporadically. In June of 1940, Italy entered the war on Germany's side invaded and took a very small piece of French territory. And very soon after that, Balbo was shot down by friendly fire in Libya. His plane was mistaken for a British plane. An anti-aircraft unit shot it down, and he was replaced. And the new governor started implementing the race laws fully in Libya. So already by that time, anti-Semitic measures were taking place in Libya. Meanwhile, pretty much at the same time, France surrendered the Vichy regime came into existence. And partly out of its own far-right tendencies and partly under German pressure, it also instituted anti-Semitic race laws. And these laws were applied in the Vichy colonies, the French colonies in North Africa, directly in Algeria, which was officially part of France, and through the local leaders in the protectorates of Morocco and Tunisia. By the summer of 1940, the Jews of all of those colonies were being subjected to the radical government discrimination of the sort that went on before the war in Germany and that went on in Germany's satellites in Europe, such as Hungary, for instance. The reach of anti-Semitism, of programmatic racial European antisemitism had already come to North Africa by that time. Now, Mussolini's goal, his fantasy, his vision, was to recreate the Roman Empire. What that meant, from his viewpoint, was conquering the Balkans and the Middle East. That's why, you know, it was part of this vision that he had seized Albania, that they invaded Greece. And in September of 1940, Italian troops invaded Egypt. The goal was to... Conquer Egypt and move on into the Middle East to create this new Roman Empire that Mussolini dreamed of. Soon afterwards, the British counterattacked, managed to push the Italians out of Egypt, and even to take the eastern part of Libya, known as Cyrenaica. And what happened over the next couple of years is that there was this back and forth battle over vast areas of Libya. A mostly desert country, but with a population, especially along the coastline. And in the towns of Kiraneika, of eastern Libya, there was a Jewish population. The Jews in, for instance, Benghazi, obviously greeted the British as liberators the first time they came through. By January of 1942, Benghazi had changed hands four times, been conquered by the British, and then back by the Italians, and then by the British, and then back by the Italians. And Mussolini was looking for a pretext, an excuse, an explanation for why his troops were doing so badly, and he decided, in line with the, the Nazi ideas that he had adopted, that it must be the Jews. And he decided to punish the Jews of Libya and institute a policy of sending them to concentration camps in the desert, starting with the Jews of eastern Libya, Cyrenaica and despite a drastic shortage of trucks of equipment for moving people they began to round up Jews in the towns of Kurenika and send them to a desert concentration camp in a place called Jado near Tripoli in western Libya eventually some 2600 Jews most of the Jewish population of eastern Libya was sent to this camp and even though As events turned out, they were only there for a few months. A fifth of them died of typhus and hunger because they were deliberately starved in this camp. So all this put together says that the beginnings of moving Jews to camps, of strong anti-Semitic measures, began with Germany's allies in the Middle East, even before the Germans attempted to carry anything out.
2: So take us through then. What happens when the Germans arrive in North Africa? Is this a ramping up in terms of scale and brutality?
3: Well, when the Italians were first knocked back, Hitler began to become afraid that Italy would lose Libya entirely, and that this would pose a threat to southern Europe. And he didn't want any sideshows while he was preparing to invade the Soviet Union. So he decided to back up the Italians in Libya, just as he did soon afterwards in Greece. And he sent his favorite general, Erwin Rommel, with a couple of divisions to Libya. Rommel was supposed to simply defend the territory that Italy still had. Rommel didn't have much respect for orders, so he attacked instead. That was part of the back and forth measures. As the war went back and forth, the Germans sent more forces to Libya. They particularly had to send a lot of equipment and troops simply for supplies because the supply problem in North Africa was insane. The German general staff estimated that you needed 10 times as many trucks for each division in Libya as you did in Russia, because you had to transport even the water over long distances. At this stage, Libya was still under Italian direct rule. But in June of 1942, Rommel succeeded in breaking through the British lines. He captured Tobruk the famous port in eastern Libya that had held out so long the year before against the Germans. And based on secret intelligence that he'd received from the incredible source in Cairo, he believed that this was the moment to conquer Egypt. And again, ignoring the original Axis plan that he should stop at the Egyptian border, he plunged his tired troops into Egypt because he believed that this was the moment to conquer the Middle East. And confidence in Berlin was at the point of ecstasy. The belief in Berlin explicitly told, for instance, the Japanese ambassador, was that Rommel would take the cities of Egypt, take the Suez Canal, drive through the Middle East, take the oil fields of Iraq. And at that time, the Germans believed that their troops in Russia would cut through from Russia into Persia. And this pincer movement would meet in Persia and destroy the British Empire in the Middle East. The confidence was at an all-time high. And Hitler had explicitly told Mufti, the former Islamic leader of Palestine, Haj Amin al-Husseini, in a meeting in 1941, that Hitler's plan was also to murder the Jews of the Middle East. In other words, the Nazi war against the Jews, which was one of the central war aims of the Nazis, never had a geographical limit. It was to be extended as far as German troops reached. So when Rommel invaded Egypt, the SS created an Einsatzkommando, a mobile killing unit, to send to Egypt with Rommel's troops and to move forward as they expected to happen with Rommel's troops. And this unit was commanded by the same SS officer, Walter Rauf, who had been the production chief of the mobile gas chambers? Ralph flew to El Alamein. He met with Rommel's chief of staff there in July of 1942. And the chief of staff told Ralph, You know, we're being held up a little bit by logistic problems. We haven't quite broken through, so we don't have trucks yet to take you into Egypt. Your unit should wait in Athens, where you can immediately deploy to Egypt and then further in the Middle East as soon as we break through. By the time this meeting took place, this speech was disingenuous. Because what had really happened is the British forces, British in the widest sense, British including South African, Indian, Australian, New Zealand, and forces from other countries, the British 8th Army had succeeded in stopping Rommel at El Alamein. Rommel's supply lines were in fact stretched all the way back to. Libya. This invasion of Egypt had turned out to be a massive mistake, and Rommel never got past El Alamein, and Ralph was never, thankfully, deployed to the Middle East to carry out this plan for genocide in the Middle East. But there was a postscript to this, an epilogue. In October of 1942, famously, the new British commander in Egypt, Bernard Montgomery, counterattacked at El Alamein after a protracted battle, Rommel's force basically collapsed. And he retreated back to Libya, and then after that, all the way through Libya. At the same time, just a few days after the defeat at El Alamein, an Anglo-American force invaded Western North Africa, Morocco and Algeria. So there was now a pincer movement as wide as a continent in Africa. Allied armies were coming at the Germans and Italians from both ends of North Africa. When this happened, Hitler decided to seize Tunisia, which was still under French Vichy rule. In fact, Hitler also decided to occupy supposedly unoccupied France, Vichy France. Tens of thousands of German troops were sent to Tunisia to defend it, to prevent the obvious Allied plan of taking Tunisia and proceeding to southern Europe which is in fact what happened in the later stage of the war. And as soon as the Germans seized Tunisia, they deployed Walter Rauf's Einsatzkommando to Tunisia with the goal of murdering the 66,000 or more Jews in Tunisia. Rauf immediately began to follow the Nazi script in Egypt, rounding up large numbers of Jews for forced labor, imposing massive fines on the Jewish community under the pretext that the Nazi boogeyman international Jewry was supposedly behind the Allied bombing of Tunisia. And the plan was to round up the Jews in Tunisia and send them to the death camps in Europe. Once again, Allied successes prevented this. In this case, the Allied successes came from two directions. On the one hand, The Allied forces were pushing into Tunisia from the south, so the Nazi occupation of Tunisia really only lasted for six months. And during those six months, the British were extremely successful against Axis shipping, Italian shipping, in the Mediterranean. So Ralph didn't have the ships to send Jews to death camps in Europe. Several hundred Jews were murdered by the Nazis in Tunisia, but the grand plan, again, thankfully was foiled by allied military successes. If we put this all together, what we see is the pattern in Europe of the Nazi and their allies imposing extreme anti-Semitic measures began in North Africa as soon as the war reached North Africa. And the Nazi plan of genocide for the Jews of North Africa and the Middle East was part of their war planning. Fortunately, the worst of these measures were not carried out, though Jews were victims of the anti-Semitic measure and in some cases were murdered throughout the areas that the Axis controlled in North Africa and in the Middle East. And by the way, also during the brief period when a pro-Axis regime controlled Iraq.
0: Imagine a
1: millennium that laid the foundations for the modern world as we know it today, when kingdoms were forged, languages shaped, cultures created. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, my co-host
3: Matt Lewis and I will tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval by History Hit wherever you get your podcasts.
2: We've always known how incredibly important the Allied victory in North Africa was for broader strategic reasons to ensure that there would be an Allied victory in the war. But what you're saying is just so... Well just shocking and almost unbelievable to hear. If there hadn't been an allied victory in North Africa, if places like Malta hadn't have held in the Mediterranean and shut off those supply routes, then you would have had a global spread of the Holocaust, not only across North Africa, but are we saying across the Middle East and Persia here as well?
3: Yes, definitely. That was the plan. And you're right, the significance of El Alamein as immensely important as it is on a strategic level for the war as a whole, is also a critical part of the history of the Holocaust. The borders of the nightmare country of the Holocaust, the outermost borders of the territory in which genocide took place, are marked by the final lines of retreat where Allied armies stopped the Germans. In Eastern Europe, those are the lines that the Red Army succeeded in stopping the Germans on the Eastern Front. On the Western Front, that line is El Alamein. El Alamein is the border of Holocaust country. If Britain and the Commonwealth and the empire had not succeeded in stopping Rommel's army at El Alamein, the Holocaust would have spread across the Middle East.
2: So how on earth does this fit into Rommel's narrative of a war without hate, the idea that the Desert War was fought in that fashion? That's how he referred to the Desert Campaign. How much is Rommel aware of this? How much is he at the front and centre of facilitating this policy of mass murder, mass killing across North Africa?
3: The whole idea of the war without hate is a legend that doesn't stand up. The phrase was created by Rommel. It was unfortunately picked up also by Western writers. It ignored the fact that there was a population in the Middle East. The whole myth of the War Without Hate was that the Desert War was like a sea war that only involved combatants. And they were engaged in like this particularly brutal game of cricket or football. You know, it was a a team sport in which the stakes were death, but the spectators would not be hurt by it. And this was, unfortunately, a myth also picked up by Western writers. The flaw in this to begin with was that, of course, there was a population in the Middle East. Even Libya, which is a vast desert country, had a civilian population which was deeply affected by the war. And not just the Jews. The towns were bombed. They were overrun. Tobruk and Benghazi were turned into ruins. The Italians took the typical extreme measures against anybody suspected of collaborating with the British, up to and including the punishment in Italy. The historian Patrick Bernhardt has written about this at length, the war crimes and cruelty that took place on the North African front. Executions were carried out of suspected collaborators by hanging them up through a hook through their jaw to dissuade others. And Rommel's officers in the joint meetings encouraged the strongest possible measures to prevent collaboration. Rommel's chief of staff met with Ralph. The idea that Rommel could be innocent of knowing what a Nazi conquest meant asks us to believe that a German general incredibly close to Hitler, a German general, by the way, who accompanied Hitler, who was Hitler's chief of personal security during the invasion of Poland, somehow blocked out that anti-Semitism and genocide were basic to Hitler's program. You can only maintain this myth if you somehow or another have this intense desire to have an image of a good German who's untouched. Or if you want to somehow say, oh, because he was a strategic genius, I don't want to believe anything evil about him, which is, I think, something that's gone on a lot in the history of the war. Rommel was leading troops for a military effort that would bring the Nazis through the Middle East. He, knew what Nazism was. He
2: knew who he was working for. There was not a war without hate in the Middle East. I'm so glad that you've said that because I've always long thought that the idea of the desert war just neglects actually the tactical and strategic elements of that conflict, but also the immense civilian suffering that took place. These are major cities, major urban environments where a lot of that fighting takes place. Like you say, Benghazi changes hands five times. This is a city that is ravaged in chaos and destroyed. But tell us a little bit more, because I don't know the extent to which the suffering within cities across North Africa and the Middle East resembled that of civilian populations in Europe, let's say? Did they undergo the same levels of bombing from the air? Well,
3: the places that were hardest hit, to the best of my knowledge, were the places where the war lasted the longest, which was eastern Libya. Those were the places where towns were simply destroyed. And the British war correspondents at the time You know, Alan Moorhead, a famous British war correspondent, has descriptions of Tobruk and Benghazi as being fields of shattered buildings. Later oral history interviews that were conducted by Yad Bishem, the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Israel, of Jews who had been in that area, people described even before the deportation of the Jews to the concentration camps began, people fled the towns trying to find refuge in the villages because the towns were simply, Jews and Arabs, because the towns were simply being shattered from the air from the air force of whoever didn't hold the town that week, but that month. But there was also heavy bombing in Tunisia. There were bombing raids, although very few, against Cairo. There were Italian bombing raids in 1940 against the cities in Palestine, against Tel Aviv and Haifa. It was a war zone. In general, the level of destruction did not reach the level that it did in Germany or in Russia or in other areas that were really the center of, of massive fighting in Europe but there were people living there. And the idea that this was a war taking place in an unpopulated area is simply a blindness, a colonial blindness, to
2: the people who were the inhabitants of that area. God, where do you go from that point? I mean, it has so much resonance with the way in which you know the conflicts roll across north africa today the fact we invade with un blessing and nato forces into libya with no end game there the bombing of these cities after gaddafi threatening to murder the people of benghazi in their beds and so we're told and the fact that the conflict in libya rages on today with superpowers on both sides fueling that conflict and great powers in the region dividing and splitting and conducting a proxy war there as someone who works a lot on drone warfare, war from above, and the suffering on civilians. It is not surprising, but it is certainly saddening to hear that this is something that has been going on for well over 80 years in that region. And in fact, you can take it back further to early British colonial air power campaigns back in the 20s and 30s as well. And
3: Italian. The Italians put down in the 1920s, the Arab inhabitants of Libya had succeeded in in basically pushing the Italians out of most of Libya. And Mussolini launched a reconquest of Libya in which machine gunning villages from the air was a central tactic. And estimates are that up to 100,000 out of the 800,000 people in Libya were killed or died of disease or hunger during the Italian reconquest. The suffering of the civilian population there preceded World War II, and if you're going to talk about how this foreshadows later conflicts, we should also discuss what happened in Iraq. Because in April of 1941, a coup took place in Iraq against the pro-British government. It was led by four colonels who were pro-Nazi and in touch with the Nazis. Again, messages decoded at Bletchley Park showed that the Germans were sending unmarked aircraft with supplies for the new regime. And Britain quickly launched an invasion of Iraq. This sounds like, you know, we're talking about a later decade, but we're talking about 1941. And by the end of May 1941, the pro Nazi regime in Iraq collapsed, and British troops were just outside of Baghdad. Now, what happened at this point, the king of Iraq at that point was a seven year old, so the country was being ruled by a regent. The British let the regent return to Baghdad before the troops entered, because they didn't want to overemphasize the idea that this was happening on British bayonets, as it were. So there was an interregnum between the collapse of the old regime and the British entry. In those couple of days, mass violence broke out against the Jews of Baghdad, led by Iraqi soldiers and pro-Nazi youth movements. And The estimates are from 180 up of the number of Jews in Baghdad who were murdered during this pogrom. Estimates go up into a vague several hundreds. The Jewish quarter of Baghdad was looted, vast destruction, and I want to stress here because this is not part of the present-day image of Baghdad. In 1941, Baghdad was one-sixth Jewish. Baghdad was a center of Jewish life. It was like a New York of the Middle East. You know, it was a Jewish center. And this massive violence broke out. On the second day, finally, the regent took action and ordered the police to stop the violence. But the reports of the British ambassador at the time show that the community was shattered, that people wanted to emigrate if they could only find some place to go to. And that pogrom in April 1941 historically marks the collapse of the Jewish hope of integrating into Arab Iraq and the beginning of the push for emigration, which would, a decade later, bring almost all of Iraqi Jewry to the new state of Israel.
2: God, that is incredible. I mean, what you've done here, Gershom, and thank you so much, is you've brought out the forgotten, arguably hidden, arguably deliberately silenced actors and perpetrators of the Holocaust in places of the world where we forget that this ever took place. I've got to ask you, where can people learn and read more about this?
3: Well, I would obviously suggest to start first with my most recent book, The War of Shadows, Codebreaker Spies, and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East, in which everything that we've discussed today is given in more detail in War of Shadows.
2: Well Gershom, thank you so much. I've read the book, I couldn't recommend it more. It has so many outstanding and astounding revelations about that period of the war. So many that I knew so little about and that's because Gershom has been through all of those secret hidden archival papers and found some quite incredible sources as well. I remember you stumbling across some documents as well, is that right Gershom?
3: Well I tracked things down in some strange places. For instance, the critical papers of the American military attaché in Cairo, which form a running account of the battle there from an allied but non-British source, were mostly unavailable in the American archives for reasons which are not clear. There was a lot of chaos in the filing. There's also documents that are still classified from World War II. I would explain to you why that's the case as soon as I could look at the documents to tell you why somebody would keep them classified. And I wanted to track down those papers because they were a crucial part of the story. And I eventually tracked down the colonel's granddaughter and, rather miraculously, she had inherited her grandfather's house. And in the attic were a stack of manila envelopes with the originals of his cables from Cairo. So that became a
2: very, very important source on what happened during this war important is an understatement i think that is a historian's dream wish it is a gold mine to find something like that and i have no doubt that there'll be much more coming from you and from those files as well and we'll get you back on the warfare podcast thank you so much for your time thank you it's been a pleasure speaking with you today